You know, I, I listened to... We're going to do a little pre-roll here? No, nah, he's uh, he's ready, so I think I'm going to go ahead Yeah, and... but we could say who he is or something. Maybe we'd do that with him. No, nah, I don't Whatever, think we, I'm I don't, along for the ride. You do this I, this I don't, morning. I don't think we should say who it is. Okay. You know, I listened to the Jim Gibson episode again. Oh, yeah, this we, morning which makes to, sense, yeah. To prep on the on Boilerplate. We're going to yeah. link that one up as well. You'll see why this is relevant. Yeah, we're going to call Greg Class in just a second, uh, Georgetown Law, and, to talk, and talk about a paper about consumer contracting. Yep. And... Wow. Interesting, right? Yep. Uh, oh. And our, our conversation with Jim, which I thought about a lot while I was reading Greg's paper, um, you know, obviously tackles a different – it's quite different even though it's in the same realm of consumer contracts. But uh, but that was a good conversation. It was really good. And, and Jim's I, paper was really good as well. This one's, ve- this one's very good. And our old shows, like once you've listened to them once, at least for me, like I listened to it at 3x this time, Joe. Oh, my God. Because well, you know, I didn't have much time before. That's do, eye-watering. I didn't have I much mean, time to do the, before doing the recording. But actually, if you, if you listen to it and kind of remember it, that's that's enough. Oh, okay. It, right. it works. For us, you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, right, yeah, yeah, if you're yeah, listening yeah. for an additional time, maybe right. I could go up to like 1.8. Right. Without completely losing my marbles. Maybe you could go to 2.5. <laughs> if that's even a thing. Hey. Hey, Greg. Hello. Can I turn on my video or are we just doing this audio? No, no, just audio. audio only. We're trying to preserve every bit of bandwidth to <laughs> capture, you know, all the timbre of your voice. It's um, it's cello-like quality. Oh, my. So that's what I was actually worried about. I, I asked for a microphone that would make me, you know, really sonorous and authoritative. <laughs> I, it won't work with my Mac, so I've got the cheap Sony pair. Oh, well, it's, it, it's totally, you sound fine. Sound good. You know, what makes more of a difference than anything? You've got a Mac, and the, and, and the mics and the Macs always sound good. Better, yeah. Always sound a lot better than, yeah. than the other ones. And um, and the, the thing that would make it sound better is if you do a local recording and then you send it to us. But that's we, we never ask anybody to do that because even though it's relatively simple, it's like one more, it just isn't worth it. I can do it if you want me to. No, I don't I, care. No, no, no. I mean, unless you know exactly how to do it right now, let's not. Because you sound. I think he sounds good. I do too. And you know, in that okay. sense, Christian, you're you're wrong to say it's very simple. It's very simple if you know precisely what to do, and maybe you've done it once before. Right. Um, but most people haven't, so it's not simple to most. Right. People. What? What? I, that, it's sort that, of the white whale. That's why of I said we don't ask. I, that's why I said we don't ask. But it, the complexity is not in what you have to do. It's not like it's not like a complex series of steps that you have to take. But it's right. it's kind of complicated to know what to do. Yes. As we were talking about, Christian, teaching somebody to drive a car. Driving a car is simple. Right. Until <laughs> when, once you know how to do it. <laughs> right. Once you've had the experience of doing it. Right. Yeah. Although the number of accidents and, and injuries on the roads would, would testify that there are at least some complexities in driving a car. So I guess this is another autonomous vehicles episode. Oh, that's, no. That's what I'm hearing. No, actually, you know, what we're going to talk about today is uh, Bitcoin, Joe. <laughs> mm. I went on a bit of a rant uh, uh, last night. Um, Did you? Yeah, I went on a bit of a rant last night because of blockchain and how if I hear another law student say the word blockchain, I'm literally going to lose it. it is, I'm going to go into orbit. See, now this is what you don't have. So we're recording, by the way, Greg. This is all part of the show. So, yeah, that's what uh, we do, uh, but especially on a Saturday. You should know I'll be on my best behavior now. <laughs> you should know that Joe – and I think you're hmm, – so blockchain is actually super interesting. It is. I totally agree. It's Bitcoin that really right. it, 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 it hits Joe in that kind of anarcho-libertarian, right. you know, um, it, it's not exactly a pirate flag that they'd be flying with Bitcoin. It's more of a, um, what's a libertarian flag that would, it's that kind of reflexive libertarianism that like rubs you the wrong way, right? Um, yeah. I don't know. I, I mean, is it, a, is it a don't tread on me technology? <laughs> 
Yeah, if, if right, if if the logo for Bitcoin isn't the Gadsden flag, I don't know why. And more to the point, uh, if they're setting up a competing currency, um, they ought to be locked up. I mean, it's it's that's a crime. No, it's not. Set, setting up a competing currency yeah, is against guess, the but, law. Well, <laughs> I, if I were to design a flag for, for Bitcoin, it might be that flag. It would have to be a four-sector flag. It, it would include some logo of uh, internet drug sales. <laughs> yes. A logo which would probably just be a screen of a of a ransomware, like, you know, the <laughs> the ransomware screens. Because right. that seems to and, – and then I don't know what's in the – the fourth quadrant could be – I don't know. Um, like uh, a Guy Fox mask or something. Or just like, like something which, which indicates a reduction in transaction costs, like its salutary effect uh, of, the, <laughs> of the blockchain. It's, it's so curious. And before we get into the paper, and um, Greg and I were texting a little bit this morning. And of course, my, my uh, and we were texting on my iPad, which I've not updated. Like on my phone, I'm running the latest beta OS, oh, but on, okay. the, on the iPad, I haven't updated it. And so, of course, when I hit the, when I type I, you know, um, it translates, it, it, it autocorrects it to this weird, weird character. You have yep. the question mark, uh, the question mark in a box with yep. the, preceded by an A. And um, I think this is fascinating because what, what I understand about this so far is that it's a bug related to machine learning, like the, the machine learning that goes into the autocorrect. Oh, and so it's one. I saw this on Daring Fireball, like just a brief mention of it, and and I don't know that a lot more is known about it. It may just be. So this is a glimpse into how AIs are communicating with each other. Exactly, this is our, our, our future overlords' secret language. So it's like this bug that that if, if this is true, and depending on the details, it, it's this bug that you couldn't have predicted in advance, like that no human would have understood that this could possibly be a bug. Mm. Um, maybe I don't, and I don't know the details. And so, I, so I, as I was telling Greg, I suggested on Twitter that that this. Logo, just a, a white background with the A space and the question mark in a in a square. Yeah, that could be the flag for our future fight against the machine overlords. I like it. Like when we are the resistance and we're you know we're wearing scavenged clothes and we're yep. warming our hands over burning oil drums. One big thing I like about this is that it shows that you're really planning, <laughs> and I think that's good. Planning is going to be helpful in this instance, um, and it's also you you know yeah it's a, it's a it will be a deep cut later. Yeah, it's, nice. I think it's fascinating. I mean, this whole machine learning future is amazing. And, 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 and of course, this is not totally unrelated to Greg's stuff because... It, true, it's not. At least the blockchain stuff is, you know, is uh, there, there's a whole literature developing on blockchain and contracting and automatic contracting. And, uh, but that's not what we're going to talk about today. No, because what I want to talk about is people. <laughs> <laughs> that's what makes us great. Right. It's, it's not our technologies. It's, it's the people, my friend. Right. Yeah. And, and human language, unlike machine <laughs> language, uh, is notoriously uh, recalcitrant um, against uh, easy interaction, uh, at least some of the time. Uh, and this seems to be part of what's happening here uh, is the complexity of reading these different opinions and categorizing them and r- right. really figuring out what's going on and why and what choices you're making and why. And uh, it seems to be uh, at least in part due to the fact that, yeah, human interaction, human language is quite unruly. Right. We're going to be talking about coding, but it's coding of a different type, right? Trying to code human language, it can be really difficult. Yeah, to, re- to reduce it to something discrete. Um, right. And, and, and that relates to, ultimately, to the nature of law, which you don't get as much into in this paper. But the, the issue is consumer contracts, right? So consumer contracts that everybody agrees to all the time, but not really agrees. I mean, we can get back to that. Uh, and That's an attempt, the issue. An the attempt, issue is a restatement. An attempt is judicially, process. right? An attempt judicially to to understand and, and to to decide when to enforce uh, 
Um, in particular, you know, everybody knows about privacy policies. When are privacy policies that a, that a, that a company um, posts? Um, when are those enforceable under a consumer contract, knowing that consumers don't really read these things, uh, either the privacy policy or the contract? And, and then, so there's an effort now to, there have been some cases, uh, it, we'll talk about how many in a second, but there's an effort to create a restatement of consumer contracts, one element of which is this issue about when privacy policies are part of consumer contracts. And we'll talk about what restatements are a little bit more. Most listeners know, but we, we'll get into that a little bit. And this process of developing a restatement of consumer contracting like includes this issue and is part of justifying their stance on, this is the authors of the restatement, their stance on the incorporation of a privacy policy as a term in a consumer contract, an enforceable term. They have referred to an empirical study. of, And this empirical study goes through a bunch of cases um, we can talk again about how many, and attempts to extract from those holdings in order to identify what judges, in fact, have been doing on this issue, and then, assumedly, to use the restatement as an opportunity to restate what the what judges already have been doing on this issue. All right, so, uh, Greg, how, how else would you describe the project before you get into it? Right, so, I mean, there are a couple things we could talk about. One is this method of counting cases, which is really interesting. So maybe what we're going to talk a lot about is technology and the law and the different way new technologies are giving us uh, uh, both new challenges and new methods, because what the reporters in the restatement are doing is trying to bring new empirical methods um, to, and also the fact that we have all the cases in databases now that are easily searchable to do much more comprehensive empirical studies of what courts are actually doing. And that's really laudatory when you think about it. You know, if you take a realist approach to the law, it's important to understand how courts are actually applying rules or or the rules that they're actually coming up with. It's actually exciting um, uh, that we have these new methods because everything's everything's in databases. It's easily searchable. Uh, we can we can find the links between the cases. We can uh, potentially find all of the cases or nearly all of the cases that are dealing with a given issue. And then really treat them systematically. So, so that's a sense in which what's happening with the coding and empirical methods is not different in kind than what authors of restatements have done in the past, right? Which is to read a bunch of cases and then talk about the general tendency of those cases. I, I think that's right. And I don't think we should overstate the difference that databases make, you know, for those of us who, you know, we, we, you and I went to law school a lot. We graduated uh, 16, 17, 18, when did, when did we graduate? <laughs> 2002, I think, Greg. Yeah. So, <laughs> uh, you know, shepherdizing, there, there have always been methods to find cases. That's, it's an amazing thing about the law. Yeah. And, and it used, it used to be like this intricate, you know, we've, I think we've talked about it on the show before you, you remember card catalogs and libraries and, and all the, all the analog systems that people used to have. I mean, not analog, but physical systems of organizing papers. And they but, were, but even amazing. there, there's, there's an important story of technological change because, you know, when the, before the West reporter system, uh, so the West publishing company that, that, uh, sort of became a, the dominant force, uh, in, reporting of law cases in the United States uh, in the 1800s uh, and developed uh, a digest 
system which would summarize the individual components of cases and gather them all together, organize them by subject. Um, Those were technological advances of a type, right? Exactly. Information technology. And and, um, as those information technology improvements in the gathering and consistent reporting and and analysis and synthesis of legal principles proceeded – the American Law Institute, the restatements that came along in the in the sort of 1920s, I guess, was when the, this project started. Maybe it was the 19-teens. Um, that, that impulse, hey, we know a lot more uh, and we can see patterns with a regularity now that perhaps before we couldn't have perceived. Uh, let's try to take advantage of those and reinforce the good things, prune off the bad things, and uh, try to make the law work better for people. That story is more than a century old now. I think that's right. And I think today we tend to underestimate how remarkable the whole key number digest system is, plus shepherdizing, that that people did that. Of course, they did it all by hand. Right. Uh, so it's, it's imperfect in its own way. On the other hand, anyone who's done a Google search knows that other search methods are imp- are imperfect in different ways. And they were doing it at an, in, in, by hand at a time when the output rate was obviously much lower. Yeah. Uh, so the fact that doing it by hand is much slower uh, isn't as devastating a critique of a methodology um, a, as it would be now, for example. If you, if right. you said you don't want to use electronic methods, you'd be putting yourself at the bottom of a very big hill. What the reporters can do now, or what we can all do now, is we can treat reported and unreported cases, published and unpublished cases, the same right. if, we're using, if we're using other methods. And so that's a huge advantage you know, as technology changes. But we're kind of coming into this from the back end, from the method end, uh, before we're getting to the problem itself or the question of the restatement. Can, can, we, um, can, can we, before we get to your critique of what, they, uh, what, what the authors of this study have done and and a, and a kind of concomitant critique of the use by the authors of the restatement of that study. Maybe we should just talk for a second about what restatements are meant to do or, or the arguments about what they're meant to do and so what a restatement should be. That might help to un- us to understand you know, the role of such studies, what they should be. Uh, how, so how do, how do you see them? I know you've done some work before on kind of – I don't know if you published anything about this, Greg, but I know that you spent some time um, kind of going through treatises and – at a time when maybe they weren't so sexy, right? Um, uh, and, and thinking anew about their purposes and their role in, in contract law in particular. Right. Uh, treatises are now very sexy. Um, <laughs> they are? No, they're not. <laughs> no, I thought that was the premise of Christians. So, so uh, right. I mean, I've, I've actually been doing a deep dive into Wigmore and Williston and Corbin, and, and they are really remarkable accomplishments. But let, let's keep it simple. And the restatements come along. We've got the common law which exists in all of these cases. You have the great treatise writers of the late 19th and early 20th century who start to pull it all together. And I'll just talk about contract law. Um, Williston, who really does extract from the mass of cases uh, general principles that he believes can be applied across all of these, you know, from employment contracts to, to sales contracts to inter contracts between family members. He extracts these general principles. You have other people doing the same thing in other areas of law, and you've got uh, Langdell. Uh, and so in this whole movement comes the idea of, okay, let's, let's build, get the wise men, they're all men, judges and practitioners and scholars, 
and let's read the cases and extract the general principles and put them in restatements of the law. So the restatements of contracts, the restatements of tor- restatement of torts, and that happens in the 20s and 30s. The first restatements are created and published. Can I just ask you now that I, I don't think you and I have ever talked about this, but I'm wondering as someone who's thought about this um, a lot, meaning meaning you, not me, uh, that that's kind of at the same time that the rise of statutes starts to begin, right? And so how much right. of this was an effort to to, to statutize the, the common law? I mean, did, were people aware of that impulse or was there kind of a common impulse toward codification that was affecting both the move toward statutes and the move toward restatement, um, centralization of the common law? Yeah, I'm, I'm not a historian, but you can take the example of Williston, who both is the reporter of the first restatement of contracts and drafts the first Uniform Sales Act which precedes the UCC Article 2, which governs sale of goods. So Williston is doing, is doing both of those projects. And this is the same time. When were the field codes? I don't know off the top of my head. Uh, but it's around the same time, right, as the field codes. Oh, the, I thought they were in the late, the late 1800s, the field codes. So I think they were in the earlier. Okay. Um, you know, it's interesting, too, that, that um, the fact that you've got both these things going on at, at roughly the same time, the rise of the restatements and the rise of uniform state law, uh, that um, uh, in a sense, you you might think that the restatement effort would require, at least as a rhetorical matter, for people to say, this is emphatically not statutorification, right? That right. this is, it's the restatements are not authorities. Right, they're persuasion. They're, they're acts of persuasion aimed at people who can make authoritative decisions, judges. Right. Um, but they are not themselves authoritative. They're not enacted. And I think that's absolutely clear uh, from the restatement project and the way courts treat them. Although their persuasive authority in the areas that I work in, you know, the restatement of contracts and restatement of second of contracts have huge persuasive authority, and. Of course, the restatement project, as soon as you start to extract general principles from the mass of indifferentiated and, and sometimes contradictory common law, you're going to be making decisions about which, what you prioritize and what you don't, and even getting out ahead of, of what courts are doing sometimes. So the whole, sure. doctrine, the whole doctrine of promissory estoppel doesn't really get um, doesn't gel until Williston's treatise in 1920s and then, and then makes it into the first restatement, section 90. And we wouldn't have the doctrine of promissory estoppel that we have today if it weren't for, for its anticipation in the restatement. So, so this is, you know, kind of what you're saying here is that the restatements have always had both a descriptive aspect and a normative aspect, right? The, the authors are always both restating, as the name suggests, but also hoping to guide the development of law in the future. And, and talking, you know, and so the restatement contains not only descriptions of kind of distilled, here's what, here's what generally is the law, uh, but also statements about what the law should be. I think that's right. And I think, I think it's appropriate. And I think if we looked at Prosser as an example in tort, as a treatise writer, as a key uh, figure in the the early restatements of torts, uh, and the rise of the right of privacy um, in its different facets, right? Um, I think he's, I think most people would say if without Prosser, the the law of privacy would just look profoundly different. It might not exist uh, in, uh, 
I, I suppose it, it would be hard to say it wouldn't exist at all because there were there were enough people doing enough things in courts in the in the late 1800s and early 1900s, uh, and the reaction to photography is something that was you know a, a part of that and that affected lots of folks, um, but. Uh, he played an enormous role in those two in those specific two ways: writing a leading treatise and and playing a big role in restatements that um, that shaped the right of privacy. So, so it's a pattern yeah. that that uh, I think you can see in a variety of locations. I, I was just going to say: is is it is it then fair to say that if we use a methodology today where we um, search, you know, in a, in a large database for all cases relating to a certain topic? And then we code those cases, which means that we pr- provide in advance some some template which will categorize the cases in multiple dimensions depending on criteria that we establish. And then we go through and we we mark the and we we fill out a spreadsheet or a relational database with information about these cases according to our coding. That um, that this is a an attempt to describe what what the law is along the dimensions that or what the what the I'm sorry. It's an attempt to describe what judges have decided generally to get a picture of what has been decided uh, along the dimensions that we have, you know, kind of uh, marked up for coding. And that effort is not necessarily, as we started with, different in kind from, you know, the uh, restatement writer of the past reading through a bunch of cases they've been able to get their hands on and and marking up, on a, you know, through notes or something else, generally what they what they find. And, and so this this uh, study that, that your paper is about was an effort to, you know, well, is an effort to describe what the law of consumer contracts and, and privacy policies has been. Yeah, Joe's holding can, his finger up. So before I just want to add yeah, one little yeah. thing, right, which is citations, right? Because yeah. one little layer that you didn't describe, but You're that right. is part and parcel of what's happening, is people can point to prior instances by name on a similar issue about a similar concern and that is another piece of the information that you can use, both to identify other things that you might want to read to include in your toting up of outcomes or whatever dimension you want to look at. Um, and it is a description of that deciding person's rationale or at least influences on their thinking. Right. right. Um, so citations are a key part of that at, at that time and at this time. And I just want to say before I, I'm just also I'm raising this because I'm actually skeptical that it is qualitatively the same enterprise. Um, for for reasons which I think are, are described somewhat in your paper, Greg. But but how how are we doing so far on? I think that's fine. Although I would say I agree with the reporters of the uh, consumer contract three statement that there is really a mix of method that both in their work and in prior works of uh, it's common to for for restatements to identify leading cases and really give them more attention than others. So you know Cardozo cases or trainer cases or, or Holmes cases have an outsized, they, they make outsized appearances in the comments or illustrations to the restatement. And so it's a mix of, of, of gathering lots of cases and looking for trends and also finding cases that, that identifying cases that are leading cases traditionally because of the power of their reasoning and maybe the notoriety of the judge, as well as their influence in on on other courts. So here's my concern. Before we get to, well, your your kind of multi layered critique of what's happened, that 
when when a, a, a restatement writer of the past goes through a bunch of cases, he or she is is reading them and thinking about their reasoning in ways which are kind of hard to describe. Uh, and so when I read a case or you read a case or Joe reads a case and we write up notes about what that case is about and what the principal arguments are, uh, we, something kind of complicated, I think, is happening. When coding cases is... It's very much like uh, HLA Hart described the external point of view, like someone trying, an alien from another world trying to describe, well, what is the law of the UK, right? Or what is the law of so-and-so? And they observe a bunch of regularities. And of course, part of Hart's great critique, right, is that you can't really understand law that way. You can't understand without being internal to the system and having an understanding of the... At so, least fully. You can't fully you can't understand, understand it. You can't understand it fully, yeah. which is you know, part of the answer here, right, is that this is an attempt... That there, it's what Greg just said, right, is that there are other things going on. Uh, but but I, I, in my mind, it's important to distinguish. So so when you code cases, and you, it's, almost, it's very much like you are observing things out in the wild, right, and you are trying to categorize them, and you are assuming that they kind of can be categorized in this very uh in this discrete way although you can have I, I as soon as i say that of course there are qualitative metrics and there are more complicated things that you can do and i want to look i think there we can distinguish between different things that you can code in a judicial decision and some may be more easily codifiable than others right right so you know if you want to talk about the political party that appointed the judges that are deciding the appellate case that's easy to code and then if you want to say you're doing Fourth Amendment cases and you want to say it's pro-expansive Fourth Amendment or pro-narrow Fourth Amendment, that's a little bit harder to code. But, you know, if you do it binary, you can probably get a pretty, in any given case, there would be a holding that would be pro-expansive you know, and one that would be narrowing. Maybe that's a little bit harder, but also not impossible to code. It all depends on the question you're answering, you're asking. And you could try to, for example, in your second dimension about is it is it expansive or narrowing of Fourth Amendment protection, you could say, well, you know, I, I could say um, I'm just going to I'm just going to determine whether evidence that that was uh, whether evidence was excluded on that ground or not. Right. Um, and that's not exactly the same, although it's often indistinguishable <laughs> from the first thing, from from describing it as, you know, expansive views of the Fourth Amendment versus narrow views of the Fourth Amendment. Um, so you come up with a proxy. And as long as you know that you're looking at the proxy and that it's a means to an end and you can try to improve the reliability of your metric such that if someone else went and looked at the same cases, they would code them the same way that you would. I think that's right. And where one of the things I'm saying in this paper, we're doing a lot of preparatory work before we get to it, is that <laughs> there are things that are harder that are harder to code. For example, uh, the reasons that a that a court is using, or the, the holding of the case. In some sometimes this can be very difficult to code when you start to think about questions like, well, what's the procedural posture? What's yep. the holding on a twelve b six motion versus what's the holding on a summary judgment motion? How much law do you need to get to the outcome that you are getting? What's the what's the reason for the outcome? If you're looking for support for a particular rule, but the court dismisses the case on a different ground, or did the did the plaintiffs raise the issue that you really care about? So it gets much more complicated when you start to to ask other kinds of questions and try to code for those. And when you put too much weight on the kinds of graphs that you have in the paper about how many courts, say, include the privacy policy as a contract term over time relative to those who don't, it, it, it doesn't take account of reasons. And it 
it almost approaches it like a like a Condorcet jury theorem kind of thing, right? Where it's like, well, if a bunch of courses, if 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 you read it for too much and you don't do these other things, right? It's like, well, if if most people uh, uh, do a particular thing, then that may be the right thing. Or if they if they conclude something on a question and more people conclude x on that question rather than y then it's more likely all things being equal if they are judging things independently that x is x is the right answer and of course right. the complexity of law is that all of these people are in dialogue right and and it's kind of ironic because the restatement is a, is an effort partly to like increase the strength of that dialogue right by uh, its original uh, go- one of its original goals i think was to right. increase the communication increase the network so to decrease the independence of judicial decision-making. Right. So, and I don't look, I, I, so, so the, the restatement of consumer contracts is using these empirical methods, but they expressly, the reporters expressly deny putting too much. And I think they're, they're, they're not being, they're not misrepresenting their methods here. They're not putting all the weight on the empirical methods. This is sort of meant to verify, uh, rules that they're coming up with for other reasons, both by more qualitative analysis of leading cases and by their own. These are three scholars, the reporters on here, who have thought a lot about consumer contracting and how you how it can and cannot work and the limits of consumer choice in this. And so, so uh, I don't want to say that they have abandoned the restatement projects. I'm interested in this one method that they've introduced and have emphasized. Right. Uh, and and how well it works. So, yeah, no, I, I take your I, point. I, They're not trying to deny that 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 their enterprise is partly normative and based right. on a number of other. And, and to the extent it's descriptive, it doesn't it doesn't um, rest wholly on this coding exercise that you're taking. Right. Man. Yeah. But but I'll say what uh, maybe restate what you're saying, Christian, in a different way. The the thing about coding cases and counting results is that what you present when you're done with it is a bunch of numbers and. What you don't see are all of the decisions that go into producing those numbers, the individual coding decisions of, of you know, your research assistants or the researcher herself reading the cases and making a decision and why it's being coded one way or the other. And because the output is just numbers and often they're numbers that can be represented on a graph, they can be enormously persuasive because numbers look right. like they're super hard evidence. And numbers don't lie. At least that's our kind of cultural assumption. So that's a that's a, a piece of why this method is interesting. And uh, it, again, I'm, I'm I I think it's a, could be a very useful method, but we need to approach it with caution. So, do you want to tell us what they did, and then sure, uh, and then what and then what you yeah your specific let's critique? Start a little bit. Can I start with a little bit about what the consumer contracts are about and what the restatement project is about. Yeah. And we're going to link up a prior show we did. We've, we've talked about this a little bit before about the problem of consumer contracting um, and the challenge it presents to the, the ordinary um, assumptions of contract law doctrine. Um, so we'll link that up, but I think you should introduce it however you want to. Well, I'll just say really briefly, I mean, we're all familiar because we all sign these things or agree to them all the time that, uh, uh, the, the issue with consumer contracting is on one side, you've got a highly sophisticated repeat player company who is, is drafting an agreement that is going to give on a take it or leave it to ba- basis to hundreds, thousands, tens of thousands, millions of consumers because the company is 
is giving it to so many consumers, they have they can invest heavily. It's it's completely rational for the company to hire lawyers and to write detailed terms and to get exactly the terms that they that serve their interests. Um, and on the consumer side, you're given this this highly complex document, and you can't you can't update iTunes without clicking I agree. And it's completely irrational for you to read it because the time it would take you to understand it vastly outweighs the any benefit you're going to get for, from it. And so you click I agree and you never read. So we're all familiar with that phenomenon. Florencio Moroto Vergler, uh, who's one of the reporters on this restatement project, has done some really interesting work empirically verifying the fact that nobody ever reads. And so you so, so, so what does this mean on the ground, the fact that nobody ever reads? We're worried about the fairness of terms. And so if consumers aren't reading the terms, then what's the check on companies putting in there whatever they want to do? And, and just to interject, we're concerned about more than fairness. We're also concerned with basic economic efficiency. Right. And right. You know, if no one ever reads, then essentially you are, and you enforce, you are putting the weight of the state behind a unilateral private regulatory regime. That's right. Although, let's also be clear that we all like the fact there's a, there are huge efficiency gains from this form of adhesive contracting, yep. right? The companies don't have to individually negotiate. That means that reduces transaction costs tremendously. That makes all of the things we get online and, and over the phone and elsewhere cheaper. Now, there's a selection, uh, I suppose, going on in the sense that you know, uh, you say we cons- we're concerned about fairness, and we are. And Christian says we're concerned about efficiency, and we are. Uh, but we learn about those concerns in per- in the context of particular disputes where something goes wrong between the consumer and the provider, and suddenly it makes sense to read the contract, whereas right. before it didn't. Uh, right. So we're we're talking about fights where something bad enough happened to make it worth delving into the language of this agreement, you know, uh, right? Assuming assuming that you you think when something goes wrong that the right answer is to resolve it according to the terms of a contract that the consumer didn't read. Well, enough people think it is so that we wind up in rooms where people are having debates about the meaning of this right, document. Right. Right. Enough people think that. Yeah. Um, it, now, of course, there's a whole nother room. I said a room and it could actually be one of two rooms. It could be a room full of people and someone called an arbitrator <laughs> and it could be a room right. full of some people and a judge. Right. And those are two different things. Um, and one the second it, thing almost never happens. And so if you're, <laughs> if you're is making a, huge, a restatement yeah. of law. And you're not talking about arbitration. You're talking about judges. And 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 Greg observes a thing almost that almost never happens. What are we talking about here? A restatement right. of what? Sounds more like a restatement of snarks. Oh boy! Right? A thing you look for and never actually find. Well, maybe, maybe you find fifty-one examples. <laughs> well, <laughs> or actually, a lot less. Yeah. That's why arbitration clauses are so interesting because they actually get to court. The the one thing that does get litigated would be arbitration clauses and whether they're conscionable or enforceable. But let me go back and just say, okay, so if this is the problem of consumer contracts, you could think of two regulatory approaches. One is you get an agency involved that would have uh, expertise in the area, and the agency says, well, here are the terms that you can put you, that you can put in these contracts, and that that's what the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau has done or tr- or was trying to do, for instance, with arbitration clauses, where they said, look, in consumer financial contracts. 
an arbitration clause that includes a class waiver, a class action waiver, just is not going to be enforceable. So you can regulate them ex ante, or you can regulate them ex post by not saying in advance what companies can put in them, but by letting courts judge whether they're fair or efficient or reasonable, whether the terms that the company has chosen are fair, efficient, reasonable, or whatever. And the way you do that traditionally is by using the unconscionability doctrine. So depending on how you want to approach the problem of consumer contracts, ex ante or ex post, you'll think about different institutions, right? Legislatures and and regulators on the one side or courts on the other. All that's important because when the ALI decides to do a restatement of consumer contract law, it's effectively putting a thumb on the scale of the second option because restatements deal with the common law of contract. And so what finds its way into a restatement of contract is going to be the approaches that courts have at their disposal. The regulatory option, uh, it's interesting that you, you mentioned the Consumer uh, Financial Protection Bureau, which is a, a, a relatively recent phenomenon. But it's actually, you know, if you, if you think of um, the, the ICC uh, from the 1800s and, and the setting of freight rates and the filed rate doctrine for tariffs, if you think of the telecommunications uh, markets uh, in the, the pre-1980s uh, uh, divestiture of the Bell system, um, you know, th- that regulatory option for, you know, p- basically public utility contracting for customers of the utility uh, have had this regulatory flavor in lots of contexts for, for a long period of time. And I guess the judicial method um, uh, at, from that era would be um, – uh, would be, I guess, the co- the jurisprudence of common carriage uh, mm-hmm. from England and the United States, uh, where there are some things you're willing to say, yeah, we, we give you a particular status, and that has particular consequences. And if, if you're falling short, someone can come to court and say, this common carrier failed to perform uh, on a common carriage basis. Right. And um, I would say the regulatory approach is also the FTC does consumer contracting mm. uh, and consumer protection, but they generally, the FTC generally does not talk about contract terms. Mm. It's more often advertising representations. Uh, although, although in their, in their uh, regulation of online contracting, they have started to talk about terms a little bit to put it in historical context, you know, also the whole unconscionability doctrine, when you look at the uniform commercial code and the conversations they were having in drafting it, they were thinking about adhesive contracts as well, contracts that were given on a take-it-or-leave-it basis, especially to consumers. So on the judicial side, the whole doctrine of unconscionability is about regulating ex-post terms like this. That's not the only thing it does, but that's the the origin of the doctrine. So all this is is to give background on, so we have, so we get, the, the American Law Institute decides maybe it's time for a restatement of consumer contracts because the rules that apply to consumer contracts are genuinely different from those that apply to other types of contracts. And and they start in on the project and the reporters uh, uh, take this basic approach which um, they describe as the grand bargain. And this is important to understanding the more specific rules for privacy policies. And the grand bargain says, we're not going to worry about how much consumers read 
or whether they actually understand what they're signing. And we're not even going to worry about necessarily whether they got the terms in advance. Uh, this is called shrink wrap among contract scholars. It's okay if you buy something and then the terms come when, when it arrives in the mail and there's a, a term sheet that you agree to by not sending it back. And we're not even going to worry about whether they clicked I agree on the website, that it's okay if the terms of service are just displayed on the top of a website the way Google or a lot of other websites do it. And then and with a link, to, and the link says, by using this service, you agree to these terms, even though the consumers never expressly agreed. <laughs> not going to, you laugh, but, but, but there's, a, there's, a, there's a reason behind that. Yeah. It's because these reporters know there's all the empirical evidence that consumers aren't going to read anyway. So there's no point in trying to get high quality assent from people because you just won't do it. You can flash as many warnings on the screen and ask and as many radio buttons that that require them to say, I've read it, I agree, et cetera, et cetera. And they won't have read and they're just going to click it because they just want a new updated iTunes. Which which is a it's it's a kind of technologically you know, more modern equivalent of, of the problem that courts used to, I mean, and, and contract doctrine has used to solve by saying, hey, if, th- if this is really important, if it's this kind of like warranty waiver, like it's got to be in all caps or it's got to be conspicuous. Right. And, and it's ironic, of course, because putting things in all caps in the way that they thought would make it more conspicuous actually encourages people to skip it, right? I mean, so there are all, <laughs> the, all these efforts that people used to make uh, to, to encourage reading and understanding. Uh, and, and so it's not like a totally new problem that that effort is all for naught when you study it. So what's the other half of the bargain? So the other half of the other half of the bargain is we're we're not going to worry so much about the quality of consent, but we're going to do heightened scrutiny ex post for unconscionability, substantive unconscionability. So courts should really be because the form of assent or the quality of of assent to the agreement is so thin courts should look, provide more searching analysis of the substantive fairness of the terms in the agreement. And and this is important, Greg, I take it, because when you, I don't know um, how you've traditionally taught contracts, but like, you know, unconscionability is a big subject in first year contract law. But I guess the very next thing you learn about unconscionability is that it's never found. Right. (laughs) Yeah. Um, Well, traditionally, unconscionability, in order to show unconscionability, to raise the defense, you have to do two things. You have to show both that it was substantively unfair and that it was procedurally unconscionable. And what the draft restatement is saying, and California courts have said this, there's plenty of authority for it, is, well, when we've got a consumer contract of adhesion, the procedural prong is met. And so we don't have to worry about whether we can go straight to a a question to courts examining the substantive fairness of, of the terms. And they've got some really... Things to, things to say about that that I, I really agree with. So, for example, they have a very strong position on the fairness of, of arbitration clauses that include class arbitration waivers. That's a, You could do a whole show on that, or maybe you have. Um, that's a whole, and, and, and I think they're correct in saying that in these contracts of adhesion court, there, there's a strong unconscionability argument for terms like this that are today very common. But it's, it is ironic that we're calling it consumer contract because we're in that grand bargain lets go of the thing that meaningfully makes it contracts. That's right. That's right. So it's and more like a, consumer treatment. 
Uh, it's more yeah, like con- you know, the restatement of consumer protection. The restatement of consumer treatment seems like it would be more honest. <laughs> it's not a it? great title, though. What? <laughs> it's, not, it's not like, it, you know, maybe the... the uh, and it would have two chapters. It would have an arbitration chapter and an unconscionability chapter, and that would be it. Well, if you're and be and really, maybe only one. If you're going to be really honest about it, you would call it like the new statement of, of, um, uh, of corporate consumer rulemaking. <laughs> or something like that, right? It's like, well, it's but, not rulemaking, but because it's done, it's done it at this sort of one-off retail judicial level. But it's, um, I, just calling it contract is sort of goofy to me. I, but. I'm excited though because because we're only at the 45 minute mark and we're about to get to what Greg's paper is about. <laughs> <laughs> We've been talking about his paper the whole time. <laughs> no, but it's true. You know, Ar- Arthur Leff has a, a, an article from way back when I, I, I don't know the, the 60s. Uh, called contract is thing, and he's saying, "Look, let's just regulate regulate these consumer contracts like like consumer products, you know, and use products liability law. The company's making this thing, this set of, and will will determine whether on strict liability whether or not it's harmful, um, whether or not it's it's likely to, to to risk harm to the consumers, and we should not be regulating them. We shouldn't be thinking of them as contracts at all. Or you could just pick up the consumer expectations test from products to liability, right? Let's say when, when I use iTunes, like what do I expect is going to happen? And the company's going to have to show something, you know, some serious gains and that, that would be had by doing something unexpected. Right. Yeah. And you, and we shouldn't have trouble thinking of relations as things because that's what property law is. So but the uh, law of the relations among persons in respect of things. Sure. All right. I'm going to leave that just in the interest of, of getting to the substance of Greg's critique. I will, I'll leave that alone. <laughs> okay. So I will, I will just go a little bit further on why I'm asking the question I am. So once you've got this grand bargain, then uh, uh, you apply it to a whole bunch of different repeat questions, you might say, that reappear in consumer contracts. One of them is privacy policies. So what happens when a, when a company, say, includes both terms of service and maybe the consumer expressly agrees to those current terms of service by clicking I agree, but then there's also a link to the company's privacy policy. And that privacy policy isn't embedded in the terms of service. It might be, but let's say it's not. It's just a separate policy and the, there's a link to it and the question is, well, now that you have this very thin form of consent, does the consent also operate for the privacy policy? And does the privacy policy become part of the contract? And this is important because, as everybody probably knows, we've got a real, a whole new, we're in a whole new world of big data. And Facebook and Google and everyone else is aggregating all of this data about us and monetizing it and selling it and using it in all kinds of very interesting and sometimes problematic ways, sometimes giving it to the police in, in, in ways that would otherwise raise Fourth Amendment issues. So one of the questions is how, what should be the form of consumer consent to this? So uh, there is also a restatement of the principles of privacy. And there are statutes in California and elsewhere, uh, and the FTC has weighed in on this, on in the case of privacy policies, what should be the form of consent? How much, what should be the quality of consent that we insist on in order to permit 
a company to do what would otherwise be an invasion of privacy, right? That's not a contract question. That's more like a tort question. It's think about the consent as it operates in battery or, or in um, trespass. Uh, and it, consent is a piece of privacy law as well. So, so there's that whole kind of conversation going on over there in the privacy field about how much consent do we want. But the approach of the restatement of consumer contracts uh, is doing something else. The grand bargain means a very thin form of consent is enough to get you a contractual obligation. And so maybe these privacy policies are all part of the contracts. And then that kind of obviates the whole conversation that's going on in privacy law. Does that make sense? Yeah. I'm actually interested in the restatement project as a whole. I find it fascinating. And there and and we've been talking about the empirical studies that are embedded in it. And there are six different empirical studies. And so back in February of 2017, I asked the reporters, hey, look, could I see some of the data from these empirical studies? They first said no. And I wrote back and said, well, that's kind of strange. You're doing this empirical project. It's I, I kind of thought it was a basic premise of empiricism that you share the data. In fact, they had already published two of the studies, including the one on privacy policies, in an essay in the University of Chicago Law Review. So then they, 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 they were nice enough to send me the data for the privacy policy study. That's the only one of the six that I got the data for. So that's why, I, that's why this study is about privacy policies, because that's what I got the data for. Huh. What they sent me was 51 cases that that and they sent me the basic coding that they did not the full coding but the basic coding for those 51 cases that dealt with the question that they're addressing in, in the, this provision of the of the draft restatement which is do courts treat privacy policies as part of the contract and uh, those cases were coded for that question either they do it is part of the contract it's not part of the contract or there's no holding one way or the other on it and what they found out of those what, what they reported out of those 51 cases is that 40 of them were on point 35 treated the privacy policy as part of the contract and five did not so that's out of a universe of 40 relevant cases you've got a, a seven to one a very strong uh, uh, a very strong tilt towards treating them as part of the contract, which is the rule that they advocate. So job done, because if my effort is to restate the law, I've looked at the law and the the law basically is, uh, except in the minority of cases, that you treat privacy policies as part of the contract. Yeah, it sent a clear signal. There wasn't much noise. I've reported right. the signal. Right, done. Right, right. right. And that's right. And I'll just say two other things. I mean, these are very sophisticated empiricists. The reporters are in their in their academic work. Right. Once you've got it all coded, you can do other things with it. You've got all of the years codified also. So one thing you can do is you can uh, look for trends over time. And what they report is that when you move from the earlier to the later cases, courts are increasingly enforcing these policies so that suggests that sort of the more the, 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 the more contemporary trend is to enforce. And you can also look at citation counts and say, well, which are the more in the data set, which are the more influential decisions? And what they find is that, or what they report is that the uh, uh, cases that are enforcing are also the more influential decisions. 
Um, so right, everything points towards towards the the conclusion that courts are treating privacy policies as parts of the consumer contract. And then, and then you looked at you looked at these data that were available, and and what did you what did you find? Now we're really to the paper. So. <laughs> I had, so, and, I had and before you before you describe it. Oh boy, um, no, we're not this there. This is a Xenos paradox. We're we're never going to get there. No, but um, but before you, so, so in the summary you just gave, uh, one thing I didn't hear you describe them describe is a concern about whether the the privacy policy was being uh, included in the terms of the contract by way of you know the plaintiff said the defendant revealed information that should have been treated as private and therefore breached the contract, or alternatively, the plaintiff said the the privacy that was supposed to be afforded to me in some way, or, or maybe I was supposed to provide them some information I didn't provide. So so there's nothing about the, the kind of the actual texture of the claim that's being re- reported by them. But 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 the lawyer in me says, wait a minute, you know, th- those things usually matter. So why aren't they talking about it? You and me both. The first time I, <laughs> I sort of encountered the draft was a couple years ago at a conference. And one of the reporters, Omri Ben-Shahar, was nice enough to invite me to comment on, he was presenting this at the conference, and he was nice enough to ask me to comment on it and, and a couple other people. And so he and I were having lunch at the conference, and he was describing this privacy policy study. And that was my first question, too. I said, well, so are you coding for who's who's raising the claim, whether it's the consumer saying that there's a violation or whether it's the company saying this this prevents a violation, right? Because you might think that if it's always one side or the other, that will skew your data. Um, and I think at the time they hadn't been coding for that. I don't know whether, I've never seen the full coding so maybe they are now, but that is relevant to to my own my own analysis of these cases. So here's what I did. I'll just give a quick. I got I have the 51 cases. The first thing I did is I I have a really awesome RA research assistant, and I asked her to read them all and to just codify them herself. And then I had hers, and she came up with some very different numbers than they did. And so then I went through them all because it's only 51 cases. It's not that much. It took me a week or or two uh, to read them very carefully. And I coded them all. And I came up with vastly different results. And you could kind of put them, the the results that were different in three different buckets. Before you do that, your your results were, if I remember right, similar but a little bit different from hers but both well, of your results were vastly different from the um from from the essay's results exactly and and uh it was a nice teaching moment with her you know she's she she's actually that was her first year of law school um so she hadn't done that much reading of cases and for example didn't there were things that she just didn't understand i don't want to say that part of the point of this paper is that different people are going to code differently but yeah. another point might be that it takes a certain amount of expertise to code these cases. I think it might make a difference that that I have the experience of an appellate clerkship and a couple years of appellate practice in understanding uh, what the holding of cases, uh, the holding of a case is, as compared to a first or second year law student who who hasn't spent so much time reading cases and thinking about what you could cite to a court for what proposition. 
I will also say, and if I had it to do again, I would do it differently. Neither, neither my research assistant nor I coded blindly. So we both knew how the reporters had coded when we did the coding. And the reason for that was because I, I, I wanted to make sure I was kind of understanding what they were doing with these cases. And I thought it would be helpful to see how they were coding them so that uh, I, I could try to, try to see when they were coding them differently. For me, I could try to make a guess about why they had coded it that way. But in retrospect, um, or if I were to do it again, or and I thought about follow-on studies, I'd, I'd find experts to code them who wouldn't know what the question is, wouldn't know, I mean, what the question, the thesis of the paper or the hypothesis is, wouldn't know the reporters had coded them, you know, and you'd, you'd have more robust results. Yeah, I was just going to say, you kind of have to make a choice about whether your project is a critique of individual coding. In, in, in right. coding of individual cases, or if it's going to be a rep, kind of just a formal replication study, and, right. and those are those are different projects. Well, you can do them both in one order, but you can't do them both in a, in the other yeah, order. Yeah, yeah. I was, <laughs> was going to say that too, but I didn't want. Yeah, 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 yeah. And we, I think it would be fun to talk about replication and and how often it gets done in legal empirical studies, which is not very often, <laughs> and what the incentives are, and all of that. So that's a whole other interesting issue that, you know, empirical legal studies is, has, has made huge strides. Are, are, there's, there's just a lot more of it today than there was 20 years ago, but there's very little replication going on. Uh, other people have recognized this as well. Um, so, so, so here are my results. Uh, so I look at the 51 decisions. Out of those 51, nine of those I find just don't address the issue that they're saying gets a, is that their question at all. So for example, four of the cases in the data set just weren't even consumer contracts. They were business to business contracts. So I just chucked those four out. Or um, four of them didn't have, uh, uh, well, one had a privacy policy that was actually in writing and the consumer signed it um, in the store, which is very different from the kinds of rules that they're studying. So I, so nine, nine of the cases I, I kind of removed from the data set for, for that reason. 17 of them, um, of the remaining ones, uh, uh, I found there was no holding on the question that they're asking. So, for example, on a motion to dismiss, um, the court might say, and the consumer is bringing a breach of contract claim, the court might say, well, you, you failed to plead injury by their use of your data, and therefore your breach of contract claim fails. Now, I coded that as, as not saying that there's a contract there. It's a pleading question, and a district court looking to get rid of a case will always look for the path of least resistance. So, so you failed to plead injury is a quick way to get rid of the case. That doesn't mean that the court would have found otherwise that there was an enforceable contract, right? It's just a way to get rid And the, in these cases, the court never actually addresses that. The question about whether it's enforceable kind of in the abstract in the way that the the, um, the reporters are so, so, so because can, can i interrupt you for a sec so yeah. one when you code that as there's not a decision on the operative question right and, and i guess another way and i think a, a quite a quite a bad way um to do it um w- would be to say ah what i'm looking for is um i just want to find cases where where the court concludes that there is a privacy policy that's part of a contract. Right. And that case, that didn't happen, so that's a no. I'm counting that as a no, right? 
but it would be that would be a weird thing to say to a, a lawyer as you were trying to do something meaningful. The lawyer might say to you, "Well, I mean, yeah, it it is a no, but but you, but that's not very that's not a very useful way to think about what's happening because in it's that not instance. authority that would be useful in a future right. case to make an argument, right? Right. So you have to think about the ground of the decision, not merely the outcome of the case. And but alternatively, you could say, why would you ever reach the question of whether they'd adequately pled damages if if it weren't enforceable to begin with? So you. You know, you could say, well, if they got to the damages question, in fact, they, in fact, the reporters do mention this, that, that the cases are decided on the damages question. And they suggest, well, that means they're treating it as enforceable. And I would say at the district court level, when the court is just trying to get rid of a case in any way possible, no. Yeah. Yeah. So there are different ways to interpret the data. Yep. Which is another, right, that, that's kind of what's lurking in the background of the whole critique, that if you only see the numbers, you're not seeing what's really going on in the study. So I get rid of 17 cases for that. So that's nine plus 17, uh, uh, 26 of them of the 51 are now gone. And then, and you've mentioned this, Joe, there's an interesting group of cases where, uh, to my mind, there's actually no pro- there's no contract issue at all. The question is whether there's a privacy policy, and the question is whether the consumer has consented to that policy, consented to this use of their data. Uh, and when courts are deciding these, they're not talking about contract law at all. They're referring to a body of law that I referred to earlier from, from privacy law and from torts and saying what constitutes sufficient consent to this policy. And so, and some of these are statutes, right, Greg? I mean, you have some statutory right. rights about about how your data are used by people who keep data, and and a you know if you consent to the use of your data, that's usually a defense uh, that a company can make to uh, your charge of a violation of that statute. And the problem, of course, is that consent is a is a loaded term, and that it touches both tort and contract. That's right, and you know you can make an argument that maybe these should be lumped in with as evidence for the uh, uh, for the result they want in contract law. They don't make that argument. They don't in the either in the, the paper they published in University of Chicago Law Review or in the draft of the restatement, they don't say that that there are these different kinds of cases. And we should treat the uh, consent cases like the contract cases. They don't make that argument. So without making that argument, to my mind, you shouldn't count them because they're not they're not contract cases and if you ever if anyone ever cited these to a court without explanation to say here's evidence that a privacy policy is part of the contract the other side if it was the least bit competent would just turn around and say no these aren't contract cases whereas the more sophisticated argument i i take it would be that you know your honor there aren't that many cases out there telling us whether uh, whether this privacy policy is a part of the contract and therefore agreement with the contract means that they are binding. But we do have cases in which courts have found that consent, uh, you know, removes the ability of a, of a, uh, of a consumer to litigate on these statutory grounds. And that should be taken as an indication, right? Or in other words, the, the reasons that the court gave for finding that consent to be, uh, um, uh, for, for that consent to be binding is sounds in the same sort of reasons that you would that you would find uh, the contract here to be binding, right? That implies a kind of voluntarism. Right. Certainly, we could make arguments by analogy. 
um, from from that group of ten cases. That these are what I call the shield cases, because the uh, uh, the company is saying your consent is a shield to our liability, as opposed to sword cases where the contract gives an affirmative right. Right. Um, so you can make that, but that's an argument from analogy and. Uh, this is again, to my mind, an example of the real risks of this purely quantitative form of analysis, because th that's a that's a very important decision that they made in coding that never gets surfaced in the results that they report. That, that it's 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 a risk of like this, you know, if, if what you're trying to do is just take judicial outcomes as as and and coding, so you're trying to look not just at the outcome, but you're looking at the reasoning and it, that you're you think that they are evidence of some underlying phenomenon. Where here the phenomenon is uh, adherence to a a law, like to to a real version of the law. In the same way that you went out and you would study, you got in the wild and you would study critters and you would count behaviors in order to make some conclusion about what's re like really going on underneath. Like the you know how how does this critter really function? And you, and you go out and you just count like. I don't know, eating behaviors and mating behaviors and all kinds of things. And you're trying to make some, it, it's that external view, right? Which right. In, it, you need some deeper understanding of the internal view in order really to understand um, here, like the, how judges are conceiving of contract. Although it seems like, it seems like we're also like, even in that context, Christian, where you're saying it's an external view, we could sort of, we can acknowledge that people, it, it, it would be informative to know um, even if you even if you couldn't observe a population of the critter in which you were most interested, if you could observe the behavior of a critter that was a cousin of the critter in which you're most interested, you could you could say, yeah, that's worth looking at because it's going to help me know more. Because right now I don't know anything about either critter. <laughs> so if I if I want to know how you know uh, 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 this this gray squirrel is going to behave. Maybe there's this other population of brown squirrels and I could observe them, right? And that might help me understand better how what I think the gray squirrels are likely to do. Yeah, but I, I, the analogy that I would draw here is more like, uh, you know, we, we, have a, we have a group of scientists who's, who have gone out and, and counted eating behaviors in order to determine, you know, what the nutritional needs of this critter are or like how often they, do they eat a lot in, you know, whatever in, in, uh, in order to maintain energy levels or is it a Culture, is it a kind of a social function? And they counted a bunch of those. And then we have another scientist here, Greg, who's gone back in and observed that, um, that, that in fact, if you look at these critters for a longer period or more closely, you find out that a lot of these so-called eating behaviors are purely social and they don't actually eat a lot when they're engaged in like social eat. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Like, yeah. And so it, it requires a closer look at like, I hesitate to use the word culture, but the, like the social setting, you know, you have to understand and what I'm why the critters is, are doing it, it. You can understand why someone might say in reply to the critic who said they weren't actually eating a lot, <laughs> it was a social behavior, a, 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 a rejoinder might be or a response might be, okay, but they're engaging in a social behavior by, uh, by appearing to be eating. Right, so eating is relevant. playing a role, right? It's, in it's some relevant, way. but but again, and this this goes to Greg's. It's 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 relevant depending on the question that you're asking. Of course. So if you're trying to predict how how much are they going to eat in the future, then it matters why they were eating in the past because <laughs> yes. I mean, because those social situations that caused a lot of eating, or not, eating in fact they may, were eating. may not obtain. Yeah. Right. Well, and let, let me say something about how we should think more broadly about empirical studies like this embedded in a restatement project. We tend to treat them as answering a, a binary question. You know, is the rule A or is it rule B? 
or um, yes or no with respect to rule A. And But that's not how we should be thinking about these. We should be thinking about these as providing a certain amount of evidence, and we should be asking how strong is the evidence for the proposed rule. So it's not binary, it's completely scalar. The reason I emphasize that is, you know, if you if you ignore the difference between these two behaviors, then you're ignoring the strength of the evidence. You might be completely right that the social behavior that looks like eating but is not actually eating is relevant and provides additional evidence. But by not distinguishing them, you're overstating the strength of the evidence for your proposed theory or hypothesis. And so to my mind, that's the key. If you, if your question is like, how much are they going to eat in the future without taking account of the reasons in the past for that eating behavior, you, you're not, you're going to overstate the, the claim that, boy, they're going to eat a lot in the future, right? Because, you, because you're going to be insensitive to the reasons that for the, and I'm torturing the analogy here a little bit, but, uh, but, but I do think that's kind of, you know, it, it is what you observe here, right? I mean, it, well, in order to, it, I mean, my bigger point would be just be that in order to understand the strength of the evidence, you have to know more about the coding decisions than we're being told in these studies, at least. And I think that's very common. Do you want to say more about your critique and then, and then further, you know, and I'd like to turn to like, what is this evidence of, you know, we say the strength well, so, of the evidence, but yeah, go ahead. Right. So maybe what I should just say is, is how, is, is what the, res- what the results I get are, right? Yeah. Because I'm, I'm counting also, they're counting, I'm counting, and I come up with different numbers. So they come up with, out of the 40 cases that they find with relevant holdings, they have a 35 to 5 ratio. I end up with 15 cases that are right on point. And my ratio is 11 to 4. 11 treated as part of the contract and 4 do not. And this is over how many years? This is over, well, I I don't have at the tip of my fingertips exactly how many years um, my cases go, but it's a 15-year period. Okay, okay. So that's 3 to 1 instead of 7 to 1. It's three to one. Said, well, so that was when I sent the reporters my 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 results. They that's what they said. Well, but this is three to one. You're still finding evidence tilting in our favor. To which my reply is, yeah, but you have to think. I mean, now we're kind of going into statistics, which is not my area of expertise. In order in order to understand the strength of any result, you have to know both how how big your data set is and the strength of the results. Right. In other words, how far is it away from random? And so. I've got a data set that's only 15, theirs is 35. That's a much weaker evidence than they present. And they've got seven to one, I've got a little bit less than three to one. That's a much weaker effect than they find. So, you know, I was playing around with it. And if you were doing coin tosses, if you toss a coin 45, uh, 40 times, what are the chances that it's gonna come up heads 35 of those 40 times? The answer is 1.1 in 1.6 million. If you toss a coin 15 times, which is the number of cases I have, what are the chances that it's going to come up heads 11 times? Well, one in 24. Yeah, and, and so this, <laughs> yeah, no, so this is an answer. So this is a uh, this discussion. Like, imagine that a restatement is something that that is never used by practitioners or judges, and it is simply a document that people who are interested in how future cases will be decided will refer to in order to be able to predict how cases will come out, right? Then then, th- then we would be very interested in this particular question and these particular data. And the, dis- and, the and the disagreement that you have here is that they say that, uh, you know, if it's a, 
um, 15 to one effect, right? Then, then we can say that, you know, the, 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 the chances that it is pure chance that the cases came out this way, and in fact, there is no consensus among judges, is very low. And your three-to-one finding is, well, you know, given the size of the data set, um, uh, it's actually not inconceivable that this is pure chance, or at least the level of consensus is much lower. So if all we care about is predicting how future cases will come out, this data set doesn't, doesn't tell us nearly as much. As, right. as, and this, that's, I mean, that's the point of what it's too, evidence for. I don't want to make too much of the coin toss analogy because there's more going on in cases and how they relate to one another than there are in coin tosses. But, but the strength of the result is just significantly weaker than they find. Yeah, you've got, so a, you've got sort of a small effect size with a big error bar and they have a big effect size with a small error bar. Exactly. And those are very different realities if you're asking someone, what do I do next? What do I do right. next? And that's, that's what I was asking, like, in, in terms of evidence for what? It, you know, evidence for how future cases will come out if those cases follow the existing trend. In other words, well, you know, uh, right. yeah, go ahead. There's a, there's a whole other kind of question you can ask about, about case outcomes as being evidence for one rule or another. So I, I, I don't know whether they coded because I haven't seen the full coding, but I did not code for whether it was a pro se plaintiff or not. Mm-hmm. But I read the cases and I noticed when it was, and I noticed that you know pro se plaintiffs tend to lose. So how much should we give the same weight? So what if what if that's a what's that that could easily be a confounding factor, right? Um, or or the strength of the underlying case, or um, there. So there are all kinds of things that could be going on in a data set of fifteen that are skewing skewing the results in ways that have nothing to do with what the law is. What I, but I guess that, you know, if your question were, and I don't think this is the restatement question, which is kind of where we started and where we might get back, but if your question were, how are future um, uh, privacy policy contract cases going to be resolved, then the fact that a certain portion of your data set involved pro se plaintiffs, there's no reason to think necessarily that that portion will, that proportion will change over time. And so, so if all you're trying to do is predict in the future, well, then the fact that there are a certain proportion of, of pro se plaintiffs and that carries forward means that your prediction should just extend or extrapolate what you already have. Right. But then now we're hitting up against really the, the old realist point that the law is just what the judge decides. Exactly. Uh, that that was an important corrective to a certain form, a certain type of formalism, but taken to its its extreme, it's it makes it's not correct, right? The right. law is more than what judges do. Me- meaning that, so so one way of seeing it is that what judges have done in the past is some evidence for what the real law is, and and no human being. Um, uh, and judges are just human beings, ever appreciates the, the real, quote-unquote, real law in its totality because it's a hard enterprise. And so, but, but maybe by looking at what they've done in the past, we get evidence of the real law. Even Holmes talked about like a glimpse of the real law, I think, in the path of the law. But, uh, yeah. and, and, of course, Holmes is famous for saying that that law is what judges do. Um, and, and, but, but, and, and but the, 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 last, the, yeah, go ahead. Look at the last third of the path of the law, and yeah. he's painting the law as this tremendous intellectual exercise where... It's it's very different from the bad man theory in right. the first third of that lecture, uh, and I think Holmes. I mean, he was obviously he was attuned to that. He was a judge. That so if you know if the bad man is looking at and, and thinks of the law as as uh, as a kind of prediction of what will happen in the future, very much like we've been talking about the use of this data set. Um, you you have to take account of the fact that when judges decide a case, they are looking 
toward, they are looking at reasons, right? They, they aren't right. just deciding in a particular case what I should do and or even extrapolating some data set from the past. They are presumably in their heads uh, going through a number of reasons for deciding this way or that way that arise from various kinds of authorities. Right. And then... And they're doing it's an interpretive exercise. It's yeah, not a yeah. counting exercise. Well, I don't. Yeah, I interpretive <laughs> in the Dorkin sense of interpretive. Well, and that's the it, part that would be e- even if you wrote an exceptionally clear methodology section for an empirical paper, and even if y- when we look at the counting we deem it to be uh, accurate uh, and fully in concordance with the methodology section that was well written to describe what was done. Um, Even if all that is happening, there is the interpretive phase, the interpretive uh, enterprise that's different from, uh, although it might rely as as an input in important ways on that other stuff, right? Um, That's a second phase. What I I take part of your critique in this instance to be is that (laughs) that other thing hadn't actually happened, right? There is not a good methodology section. There isn't an accurate uh, uh, assessment based on that methodology section. So there's like we're not even getting to the problem in a way of the interpretive phase, are we? I mean, I I think that's right. I mean, uh, in the same volume of the University of Chicago Law Review as as the reporters published this study and and another one, there's an article kind of advocating greater use of the empirical method more generally that doesn't talk about the or that talks very very little about the problem of coding, and and what is codable and what is not and and the role of interpretation in all of that, and and so there's a tendency to treat this as this is the metaphor I use or the analogy is. In the paper, there's a tendency to think this is like it's counting the ratio of, of black to white balls in a jar, as if you, you're just looking at them and counting them. And But it's not like that, right? This is the broader methodological point. One solution to that is put a methodology section in, um, which or what I've done in the paper that I've got up on SSRN is is I've put a, uh, you know, I've basically talked about each case in there and how I coded it and why. Another option is to put your data up online as soon as you publish, if not before, and invite other people to try to replicate what you've done. <clears throat> and, and in fact, when I, when I posted this paper, I put uh, my, my results uh, are, are up there in an Excel file that anyone can download. And those results include a short narrative about why I coded each case the way it is. Uh, and I think that's how now we're kind of really into empirical methodology. That's just best methods in any empirical study, unless unless for some reason the data itself is proprietary and you know, you've purchased it for someone and don't have the right to share it. Uh, that you should be making your data and coding public and inviting other people to replicate it. And I'll even go further. I would be thrilled if someone downloaded my Excel spreadsheet and blindly coded the same cases for the same question to see whether my results are correct. You know, I could be making errors also. That's, that's within the realm of possibility. It, it, we've had uh, Will Bode on the on the show before, who's one of the authors on the paper that you mentioned. Yeah, Bode, Chilton, and Milani are, is, is the paper. Yeah, and 
and and what we talked to him about uh, on that show, if I remember right, um, and one of the, one of his big projects is, is justifying originalism using a, a positivist theory, right? That that originalism yeah. just is our tradition, and and it is it is what judges do, and what judges should do is what they have done and do do, right? And, and that that is very much in a line with this idea that that in deciding what a, how a future case should come out, you should look at what the positivist, you know, what, what the positivist practice has been. And so that seems to very much line up with this empirical methodology. But, you know, you, and I guess, and this is why I'd want to talk to him, I guess the idea is if you're dealing with an issue that hasn't been decided before, it, initially you're going to have to come up with other reasons for deciding a case. But at some point you cross over into counting up cases that went before and going, you know, and deciding based on what the practice really is. Yeah, does right. that, do, am I making any sense? I, it's just, it, it seems that there's a, a huge missing piece to an understanding in theory about why you would use case counting as a kind of authority and at what point that, that authority becomes stronger than other forms of reasoning. And I'm not familiar with Will's work, so I can't comment on sort of whether this is the right kind of evidence you'd want to look for to, to, to verify originalism or not. I know that they presented a study in the University of Chicago uh, essay. Um, they did a little mini study relative to originalism, and they too did not publish their data. And they did another study about law review um, uh, citations or something. I don't remember the details, but they, they too didn't. They did, too did not provide the data alongside it. And so it's hard to know what to make of that. I mean, this is now we're kind of going into empirical sciences more generally and and the methodology in empirical sciences. And anyone who's familiar with the medical sciences or psychology and other social sciences will know that there's a huge methodological discussion going on in these areas about replication and whether it happens and whether what the incentives are to replicate and the fact that studies are often given much, that a single study is often given a great deal of weight before anyone else has come along and tried to, tried to test, tried to replicate it or to see what's, or to tweak it or to find other evidence of the same phenomenon. And, and you make this point at the end of this, you know, you know that I love this paper that you wrote with Kathy Zeiler um, about, right. about the so-called endowment effect and, and so-called in, what you call endowment theory. And, and one of the great points that you make in here, which I think, which, you know, I think about all the time, uh, and especially when I was reading this paper, is that lo- within the law, lawyers should not be using individual studies like they use cases, right? And uh, so an individual study, for example, the co- famous coffee cup study with the endowment effect, right? You should not take that as, as evidence like you would use a case um, and then use that and then reason by analogy to say, well, coffee cups are kind of like Blackacre, right? And therefore we should, you know, the rule and property law should, should take account of, of the, of what happened, the, 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 the story of what happened in that, in that particular study. Instead, we should think of it like scientists do and that, that an individual study like that, an individual experiment is evidence for a theory, and that what lawyers should be doing is taking account of scientific theories that are best supported by evidence and using those theories to kind of figure out what the law should be or, or how it should go. And I wonder if the same is true here, right? I mean, this, I, I, yeah, go ahead. Thank you. Thank you for so nicely restating the thesis of that paper, probably better <laughs> than we did. Um, 
I think that's right. But I don't think, I mean, I think lawyers are prey to this, uh, but I think it's more general, right? So on NPR, there's that guy on NPR. No, don't go talk about the latest, the latest social yeah, study. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Explains but, everything, this one study. I mean, the, 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 turn, the thing about, this is the turns out um, um, culture, right? Turns out yeah, that, yeah. And, it, and, and, you know, the original mug uh, or candy bar endowment effect experiments, they're enormously persuasive stories uh, to explain the theory that has some kind of intuitive uh, appeal anyway, that we value things that we own more than we value things that we don't yet have. Um, and so, so I think it's lawyers are prey to this in particular because maybe the law is has so much storytelling in it, and we are used to treating a single case as evidence for not as evidence, but as as a ground for a future decision. But it's all over. Um, you know, stories are highly persuasive, and a single experiment can feel like it sh- it, it, it proves um, a lot more than it might. Um, so, so yeah, this, this does dovetail with that earlier work that Kathy and I did and it's, it's endemic in legal empiricism. Well, and and you might say, you know, someone might respond, well, that's exactly why we do this kind of case coding and present these numbers because it, it, it gives us like real hard evidence rather than stories. And, and so our minds are less prone to like run away with them and, and tell new stories based on analogy. But you know, one of the points that you make in here is this, it's kind of the white lab coat effect that once you present a graph like they, like they do, or once you have hard numbers, it is a kind of story, right? The, the, it tells a kind of story that, hey, here's what, here's what we do. This is our, you know, I don't want to say tradition, that's maybe too strong a word, but, but judges, in fact, think of this, um, think of this issue in this way. And, and the numbers kind of stand in for a, for a story when, in fact, you know, the, the question, you at the level of theory, it might be, you know, what it, why should we do A rather than B? And the fact mm-hmm. that judges, in fact, have in the past thought of this issue in one way or another is, is evidence for maybe what that theory should be, but it is not itself the theory. I think that's right. I mean, I think law as a whole is an interpretive enterprise. Um, but, right, I mean, remember, they are, this is a, the, 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 in the restatement as a whole, this project, they are doing multiple things at once. That's right. That's so, why I said it would come back to that original question of what the... So, yeah. but, but, um, by adding in these numbers before they've been replicated, before the studies have been replicated, without even having sort of published their own coding to make it possible for other people to replicate them. And I, I'll do one more caveat. I could have replicated, tried to replicate all of the studies without their data because I could have done my own searches to try to find all of the privacy policy decisions. And that would have been an even more robust attempt at replication. But because you have no idea how many false, you have an idea of the false positives. That's what you found. But you don't know how many false false negatives negatives, there are. I I don't know about the quality of the search. Um, But, you know, you know, if you it took me a lot of time to do the one study of a very small universe. <laughs> right. And so if you really want to make replication possible, then making the data public is the way to make that happen. And I do worry that when you're in an ALI meeting or in a conversation with the reporters and you push them, well, is this really the rule? And now I'm not thinking about privacy policies. I'm thinking about some of the other more controversial rules that they've done studies on. Um, and you push them and they say, yeah, but we have this study. And so that shows you. And it's hard to reply to that if you haven't, if you haven't read all the cases yourself 
or if you don't have account, it takes a study to be to study sometimes. Um, so, and that's why that's why this is in part a question about sort of the big theory question, Christian, that you're interested in, which is what's the kind of evidence that should go into determining what the law is and is counting enough. But it's also about counting's not nothing, but right. what's the right way to do it? What's it's a methodological point. In, in a world where we don't have graduate students, um, you know, we're not running labs. We have research assistants, but as you pointed out at the beginning, that's not quite the same as having a graduate student who wants basically to be you when they graduate, right? I mean, we have law students who right. have other trajectories. Well, even if they did want to be, uh, the, our own training and their training, we <laughs> we don't train uh, people to be social scientists right. at law schools. And most of us, I, I actually, this is not true of me. I actually do have some social science training, um, although not to the PhD level. I got a master's degree in psychology in an experimental field. Um, and so I recognize that there's some, that there's, there are actual things to learn about doing empirical work well rather mm-hmm. than poorly. And we, do, and we, law professors as a group, neither possess those skills nor teach nor other teach people them. how to right, have those right, skills. So right. I think it is not entirely surprising that a, a lot of legal empirical work fails to adhere to what you might think of as best practices in social science empirical work. Yeah. And, and, and I guess the when other... You, and, when you never aim the, at something, it's not right. a surprise. You rarely which, hit it. But, which, isn't, which isn't to say that there's not a whole lot of methodological sophistication along other dimensions, right? Understanding right. statistics and how to, how to do big data and how to, how to find patterns. I think there's a tremendous amount of some kinds of methodological sophistication in, in law, I think. Absolutely. And, and, uh, but here's one more twist. We don't have peer review. Mm-hmm. Peer review should be one check on now it's peer review doesn't always catch coding kind of kinds of issues but uh peer review is another mechanism that's available in other empirical sciences that's not in law so i i got in touch with the university of chicago law review editors and i said did you guys site check this article um or this essay when they published the privacy policy results and of course they actually never got back to me but I can't, I can't believe that they did <laughs> because, because uh, uh, you know, my RA came up with such vastly different coding. Um, so, so there's also that kind of further problem in the, legal, in the area of, of law. And I was going to say that, that you know, it's not as though the social sciences are immune from, replication, from publishing right. bias against replication. Right. In fact, the whole replication right. cri- crisis is, and is built on this. And has a danger of orthodoxy right. that we do not fall right. prey to, at least not in the same way. But, but so. for the same reasons that, you know, um, e- even in the social sciences, a study which does nothing but confirm a prior study is, is seen as less publishable. Yeah. That, that's even more so in law. We've already talked in, in prior shows, and, and Greg, you and I have talked about this too, like the, the whole bias in law review publishing toward you know, publishing the exciting result, but like, the clearly normative on an issue that law students are familiar with from first or second year classes bias, right? That So the idea of publishing a replication is even worse, I think. I'm happy to reveal the fact that this paper has been rejected by the Journal of Legal Studies and the Journal of Empirical Legal Studies. Uh, and in both cases, it was the, the 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 claim was you're just replicating someone else's result and so it's not really that or not replicating you're just it's just about coding it, there's nothing interesting new methodologically here 
And so it's not worth as a peer review journal. It's it's not the kind of thing we would want to publish. It just I mean, it seems strange and you would want to know quite unfortunate. Well, well they didn't it's not as though those journals published the original study. No, I, I would think that any journal that published the original study who thought that it was an interesting result would find it equally interesting that that uh, kind of an attempt at replication failed, right? I mean, yeah, you, you might even think that they would find it more interesting. Well, you would think so. That, so, <laughs> so, so to me, it's surprising that Chicago would not, uh, you know, hasn't published it or hasn't wouldn't jumped at it. Wouldn't insist on publishing it. Right. Wouldn't beg you. But I, I, please I, this is like, you know, I'm, I'm not wading into, like, I don't know all the details of this, but... Um, but maybe it's a little bit less surprising that a journal which didn't publish the original study would not be interested in a replication. But the reasons that you gave, and you, you, this is part of your paper too, the reason that um, uh, you didn't say who wrote the email, but you, you quote some of it, that, that is surprising. Like it, the, the criteria they give for not publishing. Right. Uh, and what it speaks to is the need, to me at least, what it speaks to is the need for, um, you know, in, in, many, in many disciplines, um, they're, they're the need for journals of replication studies, right? Because what that conveys is the importance of it as a practice in a, in a science. But then, yeah, and then that's going to be, you know, whether the, the, the kind of second order effect here and the one that you also mentioned in the paper, Greg, and perhaps the most important one is the, the incentive on researchers. Like there's just not going to be a lot of effort at replication if you can't get a replication study published, or even if there is a journal of replication studies, that that journal isn't seen as a, an important journal well, to publish that, and in, the, right? And that's a, that's a second thing. You're right. It goes to, like, in, in part, ultimately, the real problem is the, the, um, the way people view replication as, a, as an important thing for the field. And if they don't value it as a culture in the field, then, it's, then you're right. Uh, the individual researchers are not going to value it as much either. So I'll make a pitch then for the fact that there's a there's a conference at Claremont McKenna this spring on um, on replication where they've just invited papers that only do replication. I actually had my paper in at some peer review places, and so I I missed their submission deadline unfortunately. But it's you know Eric Helland is putting it together, and so so it's out there. It, it's happening. I wish it had um, more power to them for for doing that. Definitely. And the last thing that I'll, that I'll say, I know we've kept you over, is that, you know, your, your paper, it seems surprising that it wouldn't be published, and I'm, I'm sure it will be in, in the spring, but, uh, but it, because it is, it's a, it, you know, it's a contrary result, right? And so it seems like it's doing something new precisely because it cast out on an earlier, fi- earlier finding. The problem of, of encouraging people to do replication studies is, well, what happens when they do nothing but replicate an earlier result? You right. Know, uh, you, want th- you want that to happen, too. Definitely. Um, yeah. but, the, but the incentive is not – if the only incentive is uh, if I replicate this and get a negative finding, it will be publishable, <laughs> that may not be enough incentive. That's right. Well – well, there's a lot more to say, but we've been talking for a long time. Yeah, That's we, true. we've been talking for a long time. And and it took us um, basically an hour to get to your results, I think. But that's the way our show works, Greg. We we, <laughs> we orbit, right? We orbit for a while until we fall into the, until we fall into the sun. <laughs> We're like a dog endlessly twirling on that bed, trying to find just the right moment to lay down. <laughs> there's a lot of that dog twirling, right? <laughs> But then the dog lays there for hours and hours and never moves. I know, moves. and feels great. Like, you can see the dog is so contented. 
My dog is sitting on the couch across from me right now, exactly yeah. at that place. You know, I might have put 10 minutes into spinning around on this thing until I found just the right place to sit down. But boy, was it worth it. All right. So I'll ask you guys this. Did we get there? Oh, I, yeah, absolutely. Okay. Thank you very much for, for, uh, for the conversation about it, too. Awesome. It's always a pleasure to chat with you, Greg.